Turn again, if you would, to Mark chapter 9, unless you're already there. I hope you are. (laughs) I couldn't believe it when I was getting ready to study for this sermon that this is part number 20 in our series going through the book of Mark. I can't believe it's already part number 20 as we are surveying how John Mark presents the story of Jesus in this gospel. But I was also reflecting and sharing, and I think I shared with this with um, some of the folks that were with us on uh, Wednesday, but I find this gospel to be one of the most compelling of, I think it's the most compelling of the four gospels for one particular reason. And I was sharing this with some of those who were in the midweek study. But uh, the, it's this interesting fact. If you go back to chapter 1. And I, I'm not going to rehash all 20 parts now. but <laughs> So you don't have to worry about that. But I just wanted to point out this really this fascinating way in which Mark writes this gospel. Because from the very beginning. From the opening verse in fact. You the reader. In his day he was perhaps writing to the Romans. But you the reader as you were opening the book of the Bible, and you're opening it here to the Gospel of Mark, you know who Jesus is. The first sentence, in fact, clarifies this for you. Mark writes, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So from the very beginning, from the outset, before he has even gotten into any of the meat of what he wants to talk through in this Gospel, you know who Jesus is. He just declares it. He doesn't prove it by giving you a lengthy genealogy, by trying to show you that he has a right to the throne, that he is the Messiah. He doesn't give you this uh, drawn-out nativity story uh, in terms of showing you that this is the, the Messiah who comes in likeness of humanity. We know Jesus' identity because he just affirms it right from the very beginning. This is Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the King. But what's fascinating is that the characters in Mark do not know this fact. You know something that they don't know. This is what in the literary world an author would perhaps use this. is called dramatic irony. It's a tool when you're writing a book perhaps, a novel perhaps, where it gives added meaning and perspective to characters' decisions and choices and words and actions because you know something that they don't know. And here, that almost gives Mark a tragic sort of tenor. Because every time someone disbelieves or rejects Jesus, it should make us sad because we know who they are rejecting. They're rejecting not just a teacher from Nazareth, a miracle man from Galilee. They're rejecting the Son of God. It also makes it all the more frustrating as the apostles are continually shown to be a dense group of guys who can't see through what Jesus is trying to show them. They can't see the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But such is what Mark is trying to do here throughout this gospel is give evidence upon evidence upon evidence that this opening assertion, Jesus is the Son of God, that that is true. And such is what he does here. If you go back to our text in Mark chapter 9, we have, I think, just a fascinating uh, turn of events. Here, Mark chapter 9 is just filled with stories and paracopes of Jesus' life from the transfiguration. And he goes down into the valley and he he heals this boy with uh, the demon. 
And then we can keep going, but there's some just fascinating little vignettes in this chapter. And all of it, I think, goes back to showing us who Jesus is and revealing Jesus in glory. But in a way, again, that is unexpected. So here, first of all, I have three quick points I want to show you here in the first half of Mark chapter 9. That sort, of, that sort of show you this glorified Jesus, but in an unexpected way. First, in verses 2 down through verse 13, I think we have a lesson about glory revealed. A lesson about glory revealed. Look at what it says. And after six days... Jesus taketh with him Peter, James, and John. Now, quick notice. I think it's interesting. I would love to know what happened during those six days. Jesus has just finished boldly asserting that he is the Messiah. And not just that, that he is a Messiah who has to die. And not only that, that anyone who aligns with him, as we've seen the last two weeks, anyone who aligns with him and his mission, they too must die as well. They too must suffer. As he says there in uh, verse 34, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And it's after all of that discussion and explanation of what that means and what it means to follow him, six days go on. And I would love to know what the apostles are thinking about for six days. But anyways, regardless, Jesus takes these three, Peter, James, and John, and it says, And leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. This is the incredible moment, the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's commonly referred to. Tradition will tell you that this is Mount Tabor. Other people will tell you that it's Mount Hermon. Regardless, it doesn't quite really matter where it is, but it was one of those mountains, most likely, Because here, what he's going to do is show you something very specific. And it's very important, not only for us, but for these apostles. It also doesn't really matter, I'll just tell you this, who Jesus chooses. He chooses Peter, James, and John. And interestingly enough, I found out that there was some division amongst commentators why he chose these three. Some said that he chose them because they were sort of the leaders of the apostles. And he was grooming them to sort of take over when the church age started. Which is very likely considering what happens in Acts. Other commentators said that he chose them because they were actually the weakest, even though they were the most outspoken. And so they needed this sort of event to sort of stir their faith. I don't think it really much matters why Jesus chose them, but he chose these three especially to see this glimpse of glory. Because regardless why, as we will see in a moment... They still come to wrong conclusions of what Jesus is doing and why Jesus showed them this in the first place. Let's keep going. He secludes them. He's transfigured, it says. And he was transfigured before them, verse 3. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, as no fuller on earth can wipe them. Transfigured, literally meaning transformed or changed or as our term in our language has it metamorphosized this is what's happening here he is revealing himself in all of his splendor and majesty and glory it's glory that is being revealed here so much so that it reveals itself as a radiating light 
that's so bright that it hurts their eyes, that's so bright that it makes his clothes appear as white as snow. This, I think, my friends, is the glory that is within Jesus that's being concealed behind and underneath human flesh and skin. It's also, I would say, the glory that he emptied himself of in the incarnation, as it says in Philippians 2, verses 5 throughout, that he emptied himself and thought it not robbery to become equal with man. He became in the likeness of human flesh. And here this is what he's revealing. Glory that is revealed. This is who Jesus is. In his full likeness. In his divine likeness. And he's showing himself I think also in verse 3. Just this amazing fact of his shining brightness. That Jesus possesses unparalleled holiness. This glory that's revealed is an unparalleled, unmatched righteousness that is so exceeding white, as it says in verse 3, that no fuller on earth can white them. What does that mean? That means, literally, his garments are so pristinely white that no launderer can make them any whiter. You can't wash them and make them any whiter. They are pure as snow. This is the holiness of of our Savior Jesus Christ. And yet despite this. The fact that, that just stopped me in my tracks. Is the fact that this Jesus has this amount of glory in him. And yet what? He dwells among sinners. And in fact he dies for sinners. This holy Savior. Who, is, who has his transfigured here. Who is so glorious that he appears so exceedingly shining before them. In holiness, in righteousness is the same Savior who dies for them. What an incredible fact. That this Savior here dies for filthy sinners like you and me. But also too, look at verse 4. Because not only is he unprecedented in holiness. He is the unprecedented fulfillment. Look at what it says. And there appeared unto them Elias. That is Elijah. With Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So here, Jesus is transfigured. He is changed, transformed into the full glory of his likeness in heaven. And yet here, who appears with them, Elijah and Moses are suddenly transported onto the scene and they're talking with Jesus. And Peter here sees them. The point of this whole scene is to show what? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. He being the king, he's fulfilling all the prophecy of all of the Messiah, Messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And Elijah there, he is representing the prophets. Moses there is representing the law. And Jesus here is showing himself, I am the fulfillment. I am the realization of all that they have been talking about. All that they've been saying. All that they've been prophesying and predicting through all the centuries and millennia. I am the fulfillment. I am the king. I am the Messiah. You can see this. Notice verse 7. Jump down there really quick. It says, And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And then notice verse 8. And suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. They hear a voice. It says, Hear him. Hear my beloved son. They, they, when everything finally returns to normal, so to speak, 
They see only Jesus. Jesus only, it says. I think the implication is clear that this voice that we are to hear, the voice from the law and the prophets is Jesus only. He's the sum and substance of all that you read about in the Old Testament. He comes and fulfills all that they predicted. And he's saying here, I am their realization. I am completing all that they had promised. It's a monumental moment here. This transfiguration moment. It's so theologically rich and dense that we can spend weeks, perhaps, an entire series on what Jesus is trying to say through this moment. But still, it confuses the apostles. Look what happens. Look at verse 5. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And I love Mark's comment. He says, for he wist not, he didn't know what to say, for they were sore afraid. It's fascinating here that Peter is not really sure what's going on. Normally that would probably make you not say anything, but that's not Peter's character. He speaks up anyways, and he says, let's stay here. Let's make three tabernacles. This can be it. The time is now. The kingdom can come now. This is essentially what he's saying here. Peter, not really sure what to make of this incredible moment, just seeing Jesus in this likeness and seeing these transported figures from history there on the scene as well. He declares this spot the prime moment for the establishment of God's kingdom, of the kingdom which Jesus has already been talking about so much so far. And here when he says, let us make tabernacles... He's saying, let us dwell here. Let us stay here in this moment. Bring your kingdom now. Let's establish the kingdom here. You see, this is another instance of Peter trying to subvert the mission of the cross. Remember from the end of chapter 8 where he says, he, he, it says that he rebuked Jesus for even thinking that he had to go the way of the cross and suffer. And there he's... Saying the same sort of thing. You don't have to be killed. You don't have to suffer that horrible torment on the cross. You can bring your kingdom now. Let us just stay here Jesus. Let us just stay here on this mount. And bring in your glory. Without suffering. Again. (laughs) Peter doesn't really understand what's going on. I don't think he understood exactly perhaps what he was saying. He was perhaps just reacting to the incredible moment that he was witnessing. He, along with the apostles, are thinking of the kingdom, as we've mentioned before, in a very earthy way. In a way that is just here and now. Because notice what happens. Look, as they come down from the mountain, look at verse 9. And as they come down from the mountain, he charged them, Peter, James, and John, that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. So Jesus again predicts his resurrection, again predicts the fact that he is going to rise from the dead. As it says in verse 9, the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And he charges them to be silent till this happens. And they're questioning. They're debating. They're trying to figure this all out. 
They've just had their whole sort of messianic assumptions just totally upset. And now they're trying to figure out, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's the real deal. But what does that mean? Because notice what they say, verse 11. And they asked him, saying, why say the scribes that Elijah must come first? You see, there's all sorts of prophecies regarding the Messiah and the forerunner to the Messiah. In fact, in Malachi, it talks about it, how the forerunner, Elijah, would come back and he would make a way for the king. He would be the king's herald. And the apostles are wrestling now with how to harmonize what they've read about in the prophets with now what Jesus is saying. How, how could the, the Messiah have to die? If Eli, has Elijah come back? Did we miss it? Did we miss Elijah returning from the dead? Did we miss the forerunner? Did we miss the herald? Did the prophets make a mistake? Did we make a mistake? You can see this going through the apostles' minds. They're totally sort of searching for something to seek their teeth into that this is true. And Jesus patiently again shows them. Takes them and and shows them that the prophets aren't mistaken. They were just misinformed. Notice what happens. They ask him, should Elijah come first? Verse 11 and look at verse 12. And he answered and told them, Elias, Elijah, verily cometh first. And restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things. And be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him. Here, very fascinating. He's reorienting how they were to think of this prophecy of Elijah. By declaring that Elijah has already come. He has come in the person of John the Baptist. If you turn, let me just read a verse really quickly. In the Matthew account of this same scene in Matthew chapter 17, he actually clarifies this for them pretty explicitly. Matthew chapter 17, I think it's in verse 13. Well, let me read these verses. It's the same question. Verse 10, why then say the scribes that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, whatsoever they wanted to do unto him. Remember, that's from Mark chapter 6. Likewise shall the Son of, God, uh, of Man excuse me, suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Remember, remember Herod in that moment in Mark chapter 6. He was being uh, uh, brought the news of this man, John the Baptist, who was stirring such trouble. And then he beheads John the Baptist. And then when he hears about Jesus causing similar sort of stir, he says, all those around him are saying, it's John the Baptist reincarnated. Some of them were saying it's Elijah. And he says, no, for sure it's John the Baptist. Here, Jesus is linking all of the prophecies of Elijah and Malachi and Isaiah and others to John the Baptist. He's also affirming, do not worry, I am the Messiah. He's made it clear from the beginning. Mark has made it clear. We know it to be true. We know it to be true because remember, the very first verse tells us that he is the Son of God. But also, let me just read those verses really quickly again. In Mark chapter 1. 
Mark quickly moves from Jesus, the Son of God, and he says in Mark 1, verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And he moves into talking about John the Baptist. He, from the very beginning, is linking both of these prophecies. Jesus is the Messiah. Elijah is John the Baptist. He's fulfilling that prophecy. John was the forerunner. The herald of the king. So do not be shaken. Do not be moved. Do not be stirred. What you have seen. The glory that I have revealed unto you. Is true. I am the Messiah. The king is here. He seems to be saying. And even yet the apostles were not ready. Because that leads me to the second lesson. We have a lesson about glory revealed, but we come down from the mountain, and here we have a lesson about glory reduced. Because look at what happens. Look at verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he, Jesus, along with the other three, they come to the other nine that were waiting for them at the base of the mountain. He saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? So even after a transcendent experience where glory is revealed and Jesus shows himself, yes, I am the king, I am the Messiah. And even after they see this glory and they know that he is the son of God, that the prophecies are true, nothing much has changed. (laughs) The apostles here are struggling with the events and the things that they've learned and known. And what are they struggling about? Look at what happens. What question ye with them, Jesus asked. And one of the multitude, it says, answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth. And pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Stunning scene. Apparently, these other nine, while Jesus and the the three that Jesus chose were on the mount, having this glory revealed, the other nine are here at the base of the mountain trying to heal a boy that is demon-possessed. A boy that has a demon that is so strong, it says that it it teareth him. He convulses and gnashes and foams at the mouth. It's a disturbing scene. The father is disturbed because his son is in such a dreadful condition. And obviously the boy is disturbed by the demon's presence. And the apostles are here disturbed because they cannot do what their master says that they should have been able to do. Heal this demon-possessed boy. They're disturbed by their failure. And the scribes even are disturbed by the apparent fraud that the apostles are showing. How do we trust the apostles if they can't even do what they say they can do? It's a disturbing scene all around. And it's kind of a pathetic scene. Because it's just rife with unbelief. Such is what Jesus says in verse 19. Where he says, it says, look at it. And he answereth them and saith, O faithless generation, O unbelieving people, how long, he says, shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Or as it was in Pastor Nathan's translation, how long will I put up with you? Bring him unto me. 
Faithless is a really strong word. It's a word that is, means on the unbelief that's on display, but it has this, this tenor, this tone, that this unbelief is also treasonous. It's a betrayal. It's a treachery that they were so faithless. Here, I think he's obviously, he's speaking to the crowds at large, but I think he's looking his apostles in the eyes. He's saying, oh, faithless generation, oh, unbelieving disciples, your density, your disbelief, it's like infidelity to me. It's like treachery to me that you believe and yet you don't believe. This is what stirs this irksome reply from Jesus. How long am I going to have to be with you? How long am I going to have to put up with you? And you still don't get it. You still don't understand. You're still not putting all the pieces together. Even after this mountaintop experience, so to speak. And it's no accident that this story occurs here. Because I think this scene shows Jesus' incredible patience with people who don't believe in him. Or don't believe in him fully. Because watch, watch what happens. He answered and saith unto them, O faithless generation, verse 19... How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. So the boy is brought. He, he is brought before Jesus and he begins convulsing. And the father of this boy, he makes just one of the most interesting remarks in the Bible. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. To Jesus, he says, if, if you can do anything. This is my friends, precisely what Jesus has come to redeem and answer. The idea that they would question him. He has come to show them, show everyone, show you and I exactly who he is that all might believe. Because notice what, he, what Jesus, I think he smirks. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Verse 23. He's taking almost exception. He's taking a little bit of umbrage at this idea that this father would say, if, 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 if I can do anything, how about if you can believe? Because all things are possible to those who believe is what Jesus is saying here. And this statement shocks, stuns, and it stirs this father. And straightway the father, it says, of the child cried out and said with tears. He's moved. He's grieved. He's shown in his face just how unbelieving his heart really is. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. He's moved to recognize his shoddy faith. He says, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I'm staking my faith, imperfect as it may be, on you. The one who's now crouching over my foaming son. Lord, my faith is in you, he says, but help my unfaith. And notice what happens. 
When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Jesus heals the boy. In fact, Jesus answers every single need that is presented in this scene. He silences the scribes and shows them that, yes, he is the one who is the master of the living and the dead. And he has power over those who are dead. And he raises this boy to new life. And he comforts this father. He expels that demon out of him. And he brings back his boy. But he also instructs the apostles. And shows them. That yes. They may be with me. You may be with me. But your faith is far from perfect. He's saying stop worrying about perfect faith. I think this, the point of this little vignette is to show them that perfect faith is not the point. The father had a very small modicum of faith. And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think as long as you and I will live, we will somewhat seesaw between both of those confessions. Lord, I have faith, but help my unfaith. Help me when the days when I don't believe. Help me in the moments when I don't have faith in you. Even that weak faith is all that is necessary to bring about healing. And I think this is Jesus' point. All that matters this morning is not how perfect and shiny your faith is, but who your faith is in. Who is the object? Who is the object of your faith this morning? Where does it rest? I think Jesus shows that if you put it in me, if you put it in me, Jesus Christ, I am the master, the Messiah, I am the king. Is that who your faith is in this morning? None of us will ever be completely or perfectly faithful. But that's okay. All that matters is the object of our faith. In fact, Alexander McLaren, that great preacher, he writes this, that the power of faith is the consequence of the power of God. All things are possible to him. Therefore, all things are possible to me, believing in him. And I love this. It is omnipotent. Faith is omnipotent because it knits us to omnipotence. Faith is nothing in itself, but it is that which attaches us to God. And then his power flows into us. Faith attaches you to omnipotence. How about that? This is the small amount of faith. It's the faith that's uh, the size of a mustard seed, we might even say. But even faith that that small is still abundant, omnipotent faith. So long as it finds its object, that omnipotent King Jesus. This father's faith was weak, but it was still faith. How about you this morning? Is your faith weak? The glory of this scene is that Jesus, the glorified, revealed Messiah, he descends from that mountain. And he touches and deals with our feeble, frail faith. 
And he shows us his undying faithfulness for us. He descends from the Mount of Transfiguration, we might say, into the Valley of Unbelief. Why? So that we might see him and believe. He comes into our little moments of unbelief to show us himself. As he says from chapter 1, repent and believe the good news. Remember that? He's essentially saying what? Repent and believe in me. Because I am the good news. And he's showing us that again. I am the good news. I'm fulfilling all the law and the prophets. And I'm meeting every single need that you could ever imagine in this life. I have come so that you might believe. That leads me to the final lesson. We had a lesson about glory revealed and glory reduced. And here, look at verse 30. A lesson about glory reversed. Look at what happens. So he has this incredible moment. He teaches his apostles about what this means. And then he says, and they departed thence and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know it. They're passing secretly. They're trying, to be, uh, they're trying to avoid any more crowds. And it says, For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. Remember, they are heading south at this time. They're heading south. They're going towards Jerusalem. Jesus has sort of made the turn in his journeys now towards Jerusalem. And he's heading towards there, heading towards the cross. And as you will notice, from this sort of juncture all the way through, almost all of his teachings will be cross-focused. He's upping the ante on what it means to be the Savior. And here he gives the second prediction of his death and resurrection. At least the second one that's explicit. And for the second time, the apostles don't get it. What sad words they are at the beginning of verse 32. But they understood not. Even after all this, they still didn't get it. They're still bewildered. They're still sort of befuddled by a kingdom that has to come about by a king dying. How does that make sense? What would that even look like? And I imagine them saying, what, that, what does that mean for us now? The kingdom is going to be established by the Messiah dying? How does that even make sense? But I love Jesus' words in verse 31. Because he's talking about his passion and his death. That moment when he would be lifted up on the cross for us. And he says all of these things about his death. So matter-of-factly. Look at what he says. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. I love that word, shall, repeated a couple times there. He's emphasizing the fact that they don't have to question what's going to happen. They don't have to be uh, fearful. They don't have to be bewildered by this moment that's coming. These things are eternally settled in God. They're not unsettled. They're not up in the air. This moment is not coming about unawares of the, of the Godhead. This is a moment that God has planned for from the beginning. From the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. He knew that this would happen. It's settled in God. You can be assured of this. Yes, the Messiah will die. I will die. I will be killed. But guess what? I shall 
rise. Again, he's promising not only the crucifixion, but the resurrection. He's not only promising his defeat on the cross, but also his conquering of death as he walks out of that empty tomb. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. And in that, he's reversing all of the common notions of glory by linking his kingdom's triumph to his own death. Think about the the apostles. For Jesus to die, that meant all of their missions have failed. If Jesus dies, this all crumbles. It fractures all of their messianic assumptions, all of what they have come to believe and know about this guy Jesus. We thought that he was the one. And Jesus is showing them. He's reversing what they think about the glory of death and shows them, for me, he's saying, Death is a consummation of divine victory over all the domains of darkness. And it leaves sin and death behind in the grave. For Jesus, death is victory in disguise. In the disguise of death, Jesus is conquering sin and death. He is conquering that last enemy. He's Proving and showing that he is the master, the ruler, the king. And here he is dissolving all of the apostles and ours fantasies of success. Here he's saying, I have to die. But guess what? Out of that death will come a kingdom. And as we've already seen, to be like me, to be my follower, you have to die as well. No grand, glorious coming of the kingdom. No assault on the throne. No sort of grand coup d'etat on the Roman government. It's death. He inverses their thoughts about glory by bringing them and raising them higher than they could ever imagine. Because more than just conquering a kingdom here in this world, Jesus is declaring, I'm going to conquer all of the domains of sin. And he's showing his apostles that in the reality of his own death, that to win eternally, you have to lose temporally. And to live eternally, you have to die daily. And to gain heaven, you have to give up the world. And to prevail forever, you have to be defeated first. He's inverting their thoughts about glory by showing them that it's not just about the here and now. It's about eternal life with me forever. This is the good news that Jesus has given us. Which inverts the devastation of Golgotha's cross into a moment of divine glory over evil. That when Jesus died and gave up the ghost, he secured your deliverance from sin. And that within his promise that he will rise again on the third day is the assurance that what you and I will rise to. The promise that he leaves the grave behind is the promise that so will you and so will I. We leave the grave behind. So long as our faith attaches us to this King Jesus. This King Jesus who is the glorified Son of God. Who conquers sin, death, and the grave for you and for me. This is his good news. This is the gospel. Let us pray.